This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Right at its beginning, the Gospel of Mark characterizes the Gospel as a message of good news about the Kingdom of God. According to Scripture, Jesus' Gospel may be summarized this way. The time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 3, 2, the preaching of John the Baptist is summarized with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Luke 4.43 quotes Jesus as saying, It is necessary for me to preach the kingdom of God. Indeed, all through the New Testament, the expressions kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven occur 99 times. And according to Steve Baugh, that only scratches the surface of what Scripture says about the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Below the surface, there are all sorts of references and connections to the kingdom. Steve Baugh is professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, and he's author of a new book, The Majesty on High, Introduction to the Kingdom of God in the New Testament. This volume, along with Steve's new commentary on Ephesians and other faculty titles, is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Steve, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Well, in our library alone, there are 230 books with the words Kingdom of God in the title. What prompted you to write yet another book about the Kingdom of God? (laughs) Why one more? Well, that's a good question. That is all we ask here at Office Hours, are good questions. <laughs> Why in the world did you waste your time writing one more book <laughs> no, on I the kingdom of God? I, I didn't say waste. I've, <laughs> I have uh, looked at it, and it looks like a terrific book, so I don't mean to, to be prejudicial here. Well, I don't think what I offer is that distinctive to an orthodox view of the kingdom of God particularly in Reformed circles, this is pretty standard. You're not making me want to go buy the book right now, so there's more coming. But there's more coming. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think people need to have a clear understanding of what the kingdom is. And that's what I was trying to do, is help people clarify what the kingdom is. And you can see when you read the book, there's a lot of repetition on this. What is the kingdom? Because when you ask 10 people what the kingdom of God is, and I do this every year with students, I get different answers. And often it's very vague. The kingdom is, well, you know, God is ruling or he's, you know, ruling in my heart. Or the kingdom is the gospel, uh, the church. uh, These are all good things. But when you inquire of the scripture what the kingdom of God is, the answer is clear and definitive. It is the new creation, the new heavens and a new earth. That's what it is. And that's what we have encountered in Christ Jesus. How? Well, I try to lay out a starting point for that by making distinctions and then talking about how it has been implemented definitively in our age. For example, the new covenant. The new covenant is the constitution of the kingdom. It has been inaugurated. There is no more covenant coming from God. This is it. The new covenant has been put in place. It is climactic. It is consummate now. Now in the sense of from the time of Christ's resurrection and ascension, it was inaugurated with Christ's death on the cross. But it is now in place. And 
We need to understand that thoroughly and let that soak into the fibers of our Christian being, because there's a lot of assurance that comes out of that, a lot of confidence in our faith, a lot of praise to the Lord, a lot of life flowing out of that. So I simply tried to make clear presentation of that. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Steve Baugh about his new book, The Majesty on High, Introduction to the Kingdom of God in the New Testament. Now, you say it's clear, but this clear teaching about the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in the New Testament is complex. Isn't that part of why people are sometimes vague? You have yourself already connected the kingdom of God to the new creation intimately, right? That's your definition. That's what it is. But you've also said that it is administered in the covenant of grace. Yes. Okay, so that's inherently complex. Yes. There are There are parts to it. Yeah, what I'm doing is laying a foundation. I'm not elaborating on all the connections because that really is a study of the whole of Scripture. And that gets into systematic theology, which I think is perfectly legitimate and important. I'm not doing that. I'm just laying out a foundation to start from. So this is a book you could hand out to a church group, a small group. Oh, yeah. This is not a technical book. That's right. There are not a lot of footnotes or maybe any. There are no footnotes. All right. No Greek words in the Greek font. I did. I, I couldn't resist. I gave you a couple of Greek words in transliteration. But no, it's not a technical study at all. It's just the opposite. I wanted to write for people in our churches people who would inquire of, you know, what the kingdom is and have an accessible book. And at the end of each chapter, there are study questions. There are study questions. So this is intended for laity and elders and ministers will benefit from this, but it's not a technical book aimed at other scholars. That's right. Oh, definitely. I think of it as simple, but like you say, it is a very complex subject and it gets you into the complexity a little bit, but it's more suggested and you know, I'm pointing to it rather than explaining all the details that we could. It's nine chapters and 149 pages, so the listener shouldn't be intimidated by this volume. No, but there is one thing that is a little distinctive, and I explained this at the beginning. I set out to write a book that would be more topical. It would cover the different issues of the kingdom. You know, each chapter would have a topic, and I just couldn't do that very well. It's just not how I'm put together. <laughs> So it ended up being a study of particularly five chapters of Scripture, and not full chapters in some cases, but passages. And I went into as much detail of going through the passages as I could in a popular format. So I hope you see that it is a Scripture-based study. You know, this is uh, pretty important to ground our faith in Scripture and, you know, in-depth study of these passages. I also think it might surprise people to find that we really open up in an unusual place, perhaps, but I think it's clear and important and powerful, and that's Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. The kingdom of God is a major theme in all of Scripture, but in Revelation, it is the thing that organizes the whole. It's a kingdom of God book. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I was a little surprised by that, and it's a delightful surprise to see you right at the beginning as you have an introductory chapter, and then you go into two chapters, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so it's surprising and delightful because sometimes people avoid the Revelation just because it is highly symbolic and controversial in some circles and challenging and difficult. So give the reader, the listener, some encouragement that, yes, this is all going to make sense, and they're going to be glad that they followed you as you lead them into the Revelation. 
the first chapter where we talk about Revelation 4, I do sketch out biblical principles for understanding the book of Revelation. And I stress biblical principles. These are not things that I made up. They can be seen in Scripture itself, which guides us into how to read a book like Revelation. So I give them a quick, sketchy introduction to that. But, you know, we look at a few passages carefully to see that you have to approach Revelation using Scripture itself to guide you. But the main thing that people need to see with Revelation is, this is our book. (laughs) I have to say I get animated on this because it opens up with a blessing for the people of God. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. This is our book. It's to bring a blessing to us, and we can't avoid it. I think we should take it back. It's the book for the people of God and to encourage us in this life. Yeah, it's challenging at times to know some of the details, but you can always know sufficiently. And one thing the risen Lord Jesus Christ powerfully presents to us in the book of Revelation is he is king now, and he is king over the kingdom of God. That's a really important notion, doctrine, teaching, idea, because there are evangelical Bible-believing Christians who, on the one hand, don't often or always flat out say, well, Jesus is not king. But there are some who will say that, that he's not ruling now and he'll rule later, and some that suggest that, well, he's kind of ruling now but not really, and in the future, he's really going to rule. And you want us to see in chapters 4 and 5 what? In chapter 5, he ascends to his father's right hand to assume rule over the kingdom of God as the incarnate lamb. And that this imagery of being seated on a throne, oh, yeah. that's really big. <laughs> Maybe in our eyes and ears, that imagery doesn't communicate quite to us what it would have in the first and, um, say, second centuries. When you take your seat on a throne in the ancient world, it means the conquest of your enemies is over with and you are now ruling. This is, I have acquired this kingdom. Jesus says to us in John 16, I have conquered the world. It's rendered overcome the world, but it's the word for conquest. I have conquered the world. Even before the cross. Yeah. Well, it's an anticipation of the cross. He's about to seal that conquest. You know, it's impending, but, you know, I'm, I'm here. I've done it. This is going to happen. So we need to change our idea of what it means for Jesus to conquer and to rule. Right. For example, Jesus says, when I be lifted up, right? Yeah. And we might think, well, that's the ascension. But John goes on to explain, no, this is about the cross. And so when he looks weakest is actually when he conquers. And then he is raised from the dead as a firstborn from the dead and the first fruits of the new creation. So that if anyone belongs to Christ, we are a new creation. Second Corinthians. This is biblical stuff. This is stuff that is not you know, a little tidbit here, a little tidbit there. This is the whole fabric of Scripture and of the New Testament. You know, my field is New Testament, so I concentrated on that. But this is the stuff of the Scripture. So this book is a window, in a way, into a broader view of Scripture. Well, you're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Steve Baugh about his new book, The Majesty on High, Introduction to the Kingdom of God in the New Testament. How did you come to be interested in this theme, this doctrine, this idea, Kingdom of God? God. Well, it's part of my job. I teach the Gospels class, and when I was eventually assigned to teach Gospels and Acts, as you mentioned at the beginning, the phrase kingdom of God or the synonymous 
kingdom of heaven appear almost a hundred times in the Gospels. And the book of Acts is framed by that. Jesus speaks with the disciples about the kingdom at the beginning, and at the end, Paul is talking about the kingdom of God. Actually, he says that twice in Rome. So the kingdom of God is everywhere. And I have to tell you the truth. When I was going to teach on the Gospels, I thought, well, I should teach on the kingdom of God. And then it dawned on me, my own conception of the kingdom of God was rather vague, similar to what it is with people. And I talked with some of my colleagues and got a lot of help, including yourself. And Scott doesn't even know that he's helped me tremendously in my professional and personal life. Mainly by knocking on the wall between our offices and saying, hey, keep it down <laughs> Quit over snoring there. over there. <laughs> but I just started working with it because of Gospels. And so the book really flows out of some of the material I present in class. And I felt like over the years, as I talked to students, that this foundational material helps us to then deal with the kingdom of God. So when John the Baptist announces the nearness of the kingdom of God, and then Jesus picks it up with the same words, identical words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they're saying the new creation is at hand. That's what they're saying. And, you know, in my book, I end with that. I show that you can substitute that phrase, new creation, carefully. You have to be careful with how you do that. But it is what they're talking about. And when you see that, You can understand what's happening in the Gospels more easily, I think, and why Jesus tells parables about it and how he is implementing it and how he will consummate it at his second coming. For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the Gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages. Mike Horton for Westminster Seminary, California. There's nothing more important than getting the gospel right and getting the gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary, California, because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering of biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. So this is really, in some ways, a study of eschatology. When I use that word, eschatology, the listener might think about books about the last days or end times, and that might bring up memories of helicopters and uh, left-behind movies and so forth, but that's not really at all what you're talking about. Would it be fair to characterize what you're discussing or what you're saying as something about an inaugurated eschatology? That's a good way to describe it. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? What does that mean? Well, we're talking about how the kingdom has been inaugurated. That's a good language. What does it mean to inaugurate? Inaugurate means to put into place in some way now. 
So he has introduced it, he has initiated it with some aspects of it on hold until he consummates this age. So let's put it this way. In the book, there's a chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, a very important passage. And it's structured very carefully with the center on the phrase, which let me translate that if I can, the ultimate enemy that is going to be destroyed is death. That's the center of the kingdom of God, is, and Christ's rule now is aimed at the ultimate destruction of death. In his person, he has destroyed death by being raised from the dead as firstfruits. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says, just reading from the ESV, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So, evidently, he's reigning now. That's what it's, it says. It's not completely a future. And the word reign is connected to king. Its rule is king. It's another way to understand it. And verse 26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has, not shall, but has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. He has introduced the destruction of death so that if you belong to Christ, you have life now. You have a claim upon eternal life granted to you as a free gift through Christ Jesus. And believing in him alone grants you this eternal life. And it will, that's the inaugurated eschatology right there, it will result in your resurrection necessarily because that's what Christ is up to. He's up to destroying death, which for us means bringing us into resurrected existence, which is eternal, permanent, incorruptible existence that can't change, impossible to change. And then one of the key verses is 1 Corinthians 15:50, and that says, for flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. See, Paul actually ends up with the phrase kingdom of God, because that's what he's been talking about. So this is an illustration of your argument that the doctrine, the teaching of the kingdom of God is both explicit and implicit throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament. So that when you see the tip of the iceberg where Jesus is announcing the kingdom, you know, that's just the beginning and underneath the surface, if you will, of the New Testament, it's still iceberg. In other words, there's lots of kingdom stuff under the surface. Lots of kingdom stuff. That's exactly right. That becomes more exciting because you're looking at our future, which has been put into place now. So when you get to grips with this, you're really getting to grips with, in a sense, all of Scripture and particularly all of the New Testament. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Steve Baugh about his new book, The Majesty on High, Introduction to the Kingdom of God in the New Testament. And you argue that, in this book, the kingdom of God is the new creation and one place where we can see that is in John chapter 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or born from above perhaps, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How does this passage and this language about being born again or born from above connect to kingdom? Well, this is another chapter in the book where we do uh, go through that passage and, you know, with some care in a non-technical format. I don't mean that to insult people as if people 
can't follow a biblical argument. I just mean I'm not going through showing a lot of Greek and stuff. You don't have uh, footnotes. And, I don't have footnotes to all the literature. All the apparatus and stuff. Yeah, that can which, be which can be distracting if you're not used to it. But what Jesus is saying, and I do think, by the way, it should be rendered born from above. I think that's the primary meaning, again, is implied. It is another possible meaning of that word, and there's a little wordplay. But it's born from above because he clarifies that we're born from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is involved. That's what he means. So the same Spirit who was hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis chapter 1. is new creation is now here in John chapter 3 invoked as the spirit who brings new spiritual life. He is the one who brings the new creation into existence, and he's already active in our lives to bring us into fellowship with that new creation, resurrected reality. One thing people need to understand is that if you are born again, you will be resurrected, because being born again is the first stage of resurrection. It's an internal, non-bodily transformation of us. In other words, our body has not been transformed yet. But it is a real transformation. And Paul talks about this as the inner human, the inner man. This is Paul's language for where this is taking place. The spirit of our mind, for example, in another place. That's begun so that you have a down payment, an initial act of God's raising you from the dead, We have not been raised from the dead bodily yet, so you don't want to confuse that. But it will take place because you've been united with the firstborn from the dead who has unleashed his spirit upon you, who will raise you from the dead on the last day when he comes. We're talking to Steve Baugh about his new book, The Majesty on High, Introduction to the Kingdom of God in the New Testament. One of the unique features of this volume is a connection, a couple of chapters connecting what the scriptures say about the covenant or covenant theology or the covenant of grace to the kingdom of God. You're not the first person to do this, but it's been a long time since anyone has done this. So why is this so important? I should have talked to you before and get all the <laughs> bibliography of the people who could could teach me on this. Well, there's just the, the fellow I was thinking of is a fellow named Casper Olivianos. Oh, yeah. And he published a book expositing the Apostles' Creed where he does some of this. So you have good reformed lineage in doing this, but often now in modern treatments of the kingdom, it's sometimes kingdom and covenant are set against each other. But you, reading the scriptures, have seen an integral connection. Help us to see that or flesh that out for us. Well, covenant doesn't exist for itself. So covenant is a solemn bond oath-bound bond between God and his people. When we're talking about the covenant that's redemptive, the covenant of grace, it's an oath-bound bond and a commitment between God and his people. That's what it is in essence. Well, it creates a bond. It creates this union that's analogous to marriage. It accomplishes something, in other words. And that reality that it accomplishes is the reality of the new creation kingdom of God. That's what it is administering. That is what it's bringing to pass. There are two chapters on this because it needed it. I wanted to do one chapter, but it just was too big. The first chapter focuses on the covenant and Christ because he's king and he has been appointed as king by his father. Remember, we're talking about, when I say Christ, I mean the incarnate son, not in his deity but the Son is he's fully human and fully divine at the same time. But in particular in his humanity, he has been appointed as high priest. And 
There are a lot of passages, but I focus on the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews 7, 20 through 22 makes this really clear that the appointment of the incarnate son as high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that is a covenantal act. And Hebrews brings that out by saying, therefore, he is guarantor, a surety of a better covenant. And our Reformed forebears made a big deal out of this suretyship. That's the only passage in the New Testament where that word appears is Hebrews 7.22. And it's really important. And it's a covenant. He's made it a covenant term now. This is in Psalm 110, right? Yeah. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Adonai, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And when it says Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, that's covenantal language, Yes, but it's also royal language. Well, now read verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 110. Okay, verse 1. Yahweh says to Adonai, translated my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. There's your royal language. Rule in the midst of your enemies. (laughs) Now, if that's not kingdom language, I don't know what is. And this is where the high priesthood of Christ comes. There's a merger of Christ being prophet, priest, and king. And he's priest and king here because he's accomplishing the goal of God's covenant with his people. That is to make his people his prized possession. But if they are fouled with sin... We cannot be in God's presence. We are excluded from him and under judgment. So as high priest, he pays for our sin and brings us cleansed forever in the presence of God, that we may be subjects, citizens of this eternal kingdom dwelling in resurrected perfection forever with our God, and we will see him face to face. So the covenant accomplishes that. The second chapter shows how the new covenant has been inaugurated. So when we talk about the inaugurated eschatology, when you talk about the new covenant, you're talking about inauguration that's a little different from resurrection. In resurrection, we have an initial stage of it in our inner life is being transformed from day to day in sanctification. And the new birth, you know, sets that in motion. And then it will be consummated in the future with our resurrection. But the new covenant is not like that. It's inaugurated fully. There's nothing awaiting consummation of the new covenant except its benefits. But the covenant itself is in place. And when we embrace Christ, the oath of God is ours of you are my child and I grant you eternal life. I grant you this kingdom. This is why when you look at in certain places as we do, you know, yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's the Father's good pleasure to grant you the kingdom. You know, he has made us a kingdom and priest before his God. It is our kingdom. We have a right and a claim to it now by this gift that we receive by faith. But it's a gift that he lavishes upon us. So I do try to show how some things are consummated regarding the kingdom. And you should take that as real exciting, confidence-building center of our Christian life. The kingdom of God is not some abstract thing out there. This is the gospel. This is Christ. This is our relation to our Father. It's just a way to describe it that is biblical and uh, I think very exciting. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. 
Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.